welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment for the voiceless traveler. I am Michael Bennett, and I am joined, as always, by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, one question for you in a, in a COVID world. Is private air travel a viable option to commercial flights? I believe it is, but I also have some questions for guests that should enlighten me to give you a much better answer. Well, uh, let's get him into the program. A quick uh, note, as I do at the beginning of every show, if you want to uh, send us some of your best travel experiences and you want to share them with our audience, you can send those to us at contact at tripcast360.com. Who knows, one of you may even be selected to be a, a guest on our show like our guest today. Uh, you can also listen on all your favorite podcasting platforms, whether it's Google, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We are on all of them. Our social media channels are Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and our website, tripcast360.com. And without further ado, I do want to bring back my dear friend, Vince Mickens. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about how um, dicey it was to get his uh, daughters to college in the middle of, uh, uh, of a pandemic. Uh, Vince and I have known each other for at least two decades. Uh, he's produced um, uh, special projects in media and entertainment, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, as well as developing a couple of niche TV pilots. Uh, and speaking of pilots, he is also a pilot. I will let him tell you about all the ratings and stuff that uh, he has under his belt. He owns a company called Private Air Media Group, which is based in Maryland. And he's the executive director of the Bob Hoover Legacy Foundation. And after eight-year stint with the National Business Aviation Association in Washington, D.C., and four years as the uh, at the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, Vince has pretty much seen it all. He started to learn how to fly, get this, when he was 17 years old. Vince is here today, not as a father, although he is one, he's here today as a private aviation expert. Vince, man, I am glad to have you back. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we chatted, but uh, welcome back. Thank you, Michael, David. Good to be back with you guys again. This is the first show that we're doing with anyone as it relates to private air travel. Oh, wow. Well, I, I feel honored to be able to uh, see if I can help you guys with a little bit of information about that. I want to start you off with just a basic, generic, stupid question, but it has to be asked. Define private air travel. When, you know, when somebody says private air travel, what does that really mean? Well, first of all, that's not a stupid question. I, actually, it's a very smart question because most people think of air travel as by the airlines. And if they think of private air travel or if they say something about private air travel, they usually think of it in terms of luxury. And yes, there are luxurious elements to being able to tra travel privately, but a lot of private air travel is just another form of transportation that is a better way to uh, to go uh, when you don't want to be on an airliner with a whole bunch of strangers, et cetera, and so forth. Um, but private air travel can be in a little two-seater or it can be in a turboprop or twin engine of some sort, or or it could be in a um, in a jet. So, uh, and also it includes helicopters, which are often left on the side. But actually, helicopters can come in really handy in certain situations and can be an enjoyable way to travel, depending on what your needs are uh, and what you're doing. For example, if you if you're in California and you you want to go out to the one of the islands, uh, then uh, as a, as example, Catalina. Catalina, yeah, yeah. Um, you can you can go on two different kinds of boats: a slow boat, a speed boat, or you can jump on a helicopter and be there in ten or fifteen minutes. Nice. So, uh, be before we get into the. Uh, nuts and bolts of private air travel. One of the things that always intrigued me about you is you used to fly from your house in LA uh, to another spot in LA to avoid the 405 parking lot further known as the 405 <laughs> freeway. <laughs> um, what were you flying? Uh, what, what, I mean, was it a two seater? I mean, what kind of aircraft were you flying? Actually, I, I flew a couple of different kinds. So the main aircraft I flew and I had at that time was the Piper Arrow 200, which is a four seater uh, retractable. Uh, but I also flew a Cessna or I flew a two seat Cessna. It just depended on uh, where I was going in LA County. Uh, and, and sometimes if I were going like from LA County to, um, um, 
I'm trying to think of the other county south of LA. San Diego, uh, Orange. Orange, thank yeah. you. To Orange County, uh, I might fly a, a smaller aircraft uh, just because it, you know I'm flying down the coast and it's a quick trip and that type of thing. Right. But I, I kind of did it unintentionally in terms of when I started deciding sometimes to to fly versus drive uh if anybody has as you've mentioned in other shows if anybody's ever lived in la or spent any time in la uh and you've had a rental car or you've lived there and had your own car you know that la is a very challenging place to drive probably one of the most challenging on the planet um and you know sometimes it just made more sense to jump in a plane and now you know the give and take of it is you still have to pre-flight the aircraft and things like that so you you got to prep the aircraft and 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 that type of thing but i would rather do that and only have a 15 minute flight or 10 minute flight or 20 minute flight than two and a half or three hours on the freeway so a lot of it also depended on the traffic report for that day. If I just heard that the freeways were really clogged and I felt that it was going to make more sense, then I would just jump in a plane and do that. And the looks you get when people tell you that, you know, you flew up instead of drove up were pretty priceless. I, I gave you one of those looks, by the way. So, <laughs> Well, one of my most memorable is I, I had a, a flight. And, and I, so I, I lived in Palos Verdes. Uh, and I, so I flew a lot out of Torrance Airport in, in uh, the south, south portion of L.A. County there. And I, um, I had a uh, an event that I needed to go to in Santa Monica. And it just happened to be one of those days where, uh, the 405 North was ridiculous. It was just, it was just going to be a bear. And I really wasn't going to make the event in time. I would have gotten there after it was over. So I jumped in a plane and flew up there and flew to Santa Monica. The event was at that restaurant at Santa Monica, the Typhoon. Oh yeah. A restaurant. And I flew and I pulled right up to the ramp and you know, there were people out on the deck and there were people inside the restaurant. They were all industry people. Most of them I knew. And when they saw me jump out of the plane, they were like, okay. (laughs) And when I went in, the first thing people asked is that, you know, they said, did you just fly here? And I was like, yeah, from where? From Torrance. You know? so, so they're like, you're kidding. I was like, no, I, no, I'm not. I'm here, you know. But the funny part that happened to make a very long story shorter, much shorter, is the word permeated through the place. So people were all talking about that was the talk of the night was that Vince flew a plane to come to this event. So everybody was talking about that. Did they give you did they give you the red carpet? You know, it was no, it's not about the red carpet. What it was, what was really cool is when I finally got ready to leave, um, which was a little bit before the event was starting to wind down. I, I, I don't, you know, in, in, at industry events, we go to them all the time. They're a dime a dozen. So you go, you, you shake hands, you, you know, rub a few elbows and then you say, I'm out. And that's what I did. But since the word had spread, everybody decided to come watch me take off. So <laughs> all of the people in the reception stepped outside on and were lined up along the rail watching me pre-flight and fire up and go for takeoff. little pressure there because you got to be real smooth when people are watching every move you make, especially when they're making a big deal about it. But anyhow, I taxied out and I, I uh, took off and did a wing wave and everybody waved at me and it was one of those classes. <laughs> I was back in Torrance 10 minutes later. What are the different ways John Q. Public can can take advantage of private air travel? That's a great question, Michael, because uh, a lot of people think that it's prohibitive financially or otherwise. And there are a lot of different uh, availabilities out there now in terms of traveling privately. And it's actually picked up its momentum since COVID-19. There are people that have explored it more because they don't want to get on the airlines. So they're like, uh, if I go private, what's the way to do that? To answer your question more specifically, the, some of the different ways that you can travel privately um, as just average Joe or Jane who wants to do that is you can, you can charter. 
you can do, um, there are companies that are, they're actually brokers where they will let you know space available. Um, and so you can fly based on space available. I'm not going to get into specific companies because there's a lot of companies out there and I don't want to be the one that where they say, oh, why did you favor them? But there are, the type of company is a, is a charter broker and they, they, they set you up with space available and that space available allows you to you can actually go on a, on an app from that company and you can look and say, okay, I need to go from Las Vegas to Dallas tomorrow. And you can look and see what flights they have going. And those are flights that were scheduled to go because it's a charter, either taking some people or it's deadheading or whatever. And the people that are on, if it's a charter and people are already on that flight, they have agreed that other people can be on the flight with them so that they don't have to pay as much. So you may be flying with strangers, but only, uh, you know, a couple of people, you know, maybe a handful at the most. Um, And therefore, when you do it that way, you're going to pay significantly less than you normally would if you just booked a charter from Las Vegas to Dallas, as an example. So that's one way you can do it. If If you're flying more than what we, we the, the criteria we use is 50 hours a year, then you probably want to step up from charter to what's called fractional ownership, meaning that you own a piece of an aircraft through a company. I said I wasn't going to say it, but there's not very many fractional. So I'll, I'll say the biggest one that's owned by Warren Buffett, and that's NetJets. So they're the biggest fractional out there. And and they have fractional availability from from. A uh, small aircraft, uh, a small jet, all the way up to global jet. So you know, if you're Tiger Woods, you you have the fractional on the Gulfstream 500 or 550, you know, or five or Gulfstream 650, the, the biggest one, the global jets, right. you know, and that type of thing, uh, as an example. So, um, but but fractional works. If you don't want to deal with the ownership's hassles, which is, you know, hiring pilots, aircraft maintenance, insurance, operational things, et cetera. If you don't want to deal with that, you want somebody else, that'd be somebody else's headache, then you just have a fractional share, which you put down a certain amount, again, depending on the size of the fractional aircraft, and you pay a monthly, and they have the aircraft ready to go for you usually within two hours or less. Everybody has that has a fractional share, somebody may be using all of the aircraft in the category that you have the deal with. Mm-hmm. So then they'll upgrade you to the next level. So you may get a larger aircraft for the same price. The main thing they want to do is make sure that they have your aircraft there at oh. the time that you request it. Okay. So. Um, describe for me, and I, I know some of this from going to a couple of private air terminals with you. Describe the flying experience for somebody who has not been able to take advantage of a charter or fractional or any type of private air travel. I mean, when I went to, and I, I won't say the name, but when I went to a couple of airports with you, I'm sitting in these lush terminals and everybody's cool. You know, you basically walk out straight to the plane. You don't have to deal with a bunch of standing in TSA checkpoint lines. Just Kind of, and feel free to wax poetic if you must, just kind of describe the experience of just being able to do that. It's actually wonderful, obviously, Um, but I think it's also convenient. So there is nothing like, and trust me on this, there is nothing like not having to go and go through all of the things we go through. And I'm not, not ragging on the airlines. This airline flying is just a different ball game. When you fly private, you pull up to the jet terminal. Um, and, and in most instances, if you have been pre-cleared with security, meaning your pilots have taken care of that, you can actually drive up to the plane, get out of your car, and take your briefcase and your iPad and your phone and go ahead and get on the plane while they take care of your luggage and take your car. And five minutes later, they are starting up that aircraft and you guys are taxiing out, getting ready to go. And there is something to be said about being able to just do that. The other part from a business standpoint, particularly this is true for business flying, is I may have, I may have been on the phone at my office I'm still on the phone as I get in the car that's taking me to the airport. 
I'm still on the phone as I get out of my car and get on the plane. The plane has got the auxiliary power unit on, so it has been cooled down with air conditioning. So it's 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 a nice temperature in the cabin, and my my uh, um, connectivity system is on. So I'm still continuing even after they close the door to the plane and are getting ready to fire the plane up i'm still talking to folks and as we take off i'm still talking to folks you know so i'm i've never missed a beat business wise uh this whole time and then the other big there are other two big aspects of flying private again talking about business or high net worth people is the privacy is the security um so on the business side of it uh, and, and to a degree with the high net worth, on the business side of it, when you're in the uh, an aircraft, only the, the only people, it's just you, you can have the privacy of, of the cabin cutting off the, the pilots, or if they're trusted pilots that you know, then, you know, you you can leave their, their door open. But you have privacy, so you can talk business, competitive, all that kind of stuff without worrying about somebody overhearing you and that type of thing. And, and uh, again, I have to really emphasize connectivity. That's a huge piece of it now. The ability to do conference calls and to, um, you know, just just do whatever you need to do via your no you don't have to use a sat phone anymore you know which is the old school old school you know? <laughs> um, now you can use your cell phone you know right. uh, and uh, I just uh, I have friends at both Viasat and at. Uh, Satcom Direct, and you know, I was just talking to them. They're they're launching new satellites next year that are even higher speed and all that kind of good stuff. So it's even going to get easier. One of the big pieces, by the way, on the connectivity is you fly globally. Uh, if you're flying around the world or halfway around it or to another country, is there are dropout areas where you may lose the signal for ten or fifteen or twenty minutes. All of those areas are now being filled in with satellite signals. So pretty soon there won't be any dropout unless I guess you're flying over the North Pole. And if you're doing that, that's a weird flight. So yeah, true, true that. <laughs> so I hope that answers the question though. No, it, it did. I, I mean, I, I wanted you to paint the picture. Like I said, I've got the experience. My experience came through you. Um, and so I've never had the uh, uh, luxury of being able to dis- to define uh, for the average consumer because I, I still think the average consumer thinks this is untouchable, but I've gone to enough travel and tourism conferences to know that every time I walk into one, there's, you know, I don't know how many companies are in this space, but there's plenty of them there marketing and advertising private air travel. Sure. Absolutely. And, no, and, private air travel and, is more accessible now than it's ever been. It's like anything else. The technology has allowed it to become more affordable. The type of the, the, the variety of aircraft have allowed it to be more affordable. Um, and the knowledge or education of it in terms of people learning more about it uh, and have, have, is, is teaching people how to be more accessible, how, how it's more accessible to them. Right. And, and I think that's probably what David was referring to. It, it's yeah. and actually both of you, it, it's just, it's very accessible. Now, the one caveat that I, I warn anybody about, and I, I just think it's important. Take the time. If you if you've, if you've found a company that you feel comfortable with and you think, they're going to provide you the service that you're looking for. For example, if you're looking for the ability to be able to catch a flight that's already going uh, your direction and you're going to get a really good price on it, do a little bit of research and make sure that company is reputable. Because there are a lot of charter brokers out there that don't really have total responsibility for if something happens to you. They're just cutting a deal. And you want to make sure the deal they're cutting with the company they're cutting that deal with is a reputable company that has a good reputation in terms of safety with its pilots and, and maintenance of its aircraft and things like that. And, and you can, you can, you know, for lack of a better term, you can Google that information uh, and find it out. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a charter private charter association uh, that also uh, has resources for you to, to scope that out and see who the, uh, 
the who the uh, the best players are in in the industry versus um, if you can't find information on a company, that's not a good sign. <laughs> you yeah. do want to be uh, aware of that and and just not just take a flight just because it's cheap and and convenient. Uh, and then find out that you may be flying on something that's that's not up to par. Gotcha. Do you find that most people who travel privately, private jets, are they traveling for the convenience? Are they traveling because they can't afford it? And I'm asking the question to see how many folks that can afford to travel commercial airline can afford to travel privately? Okay. So I I like to put it in terms that people can relate to. I think that if you fly business or are higher, business class or higher on the airline, that tends to translate well to to traveling privately. Um, So if you're if you're flying first class and you're paying first class, not just getting bumped up by luck, um, then you probably can afford Private. Um, private travel. The the other determining factor is well, there's a couple of ways to look at it. So if you're if you're a high net worth person, it's about point A to point B, and and a lot of times, depending on how you got your money, <laughs> you <laughs> you may not care what it costs, so you just pay the freight, and as long as they get you there, um, and then high net worth, worth individuals, they're quirky, they're funny, so. There's, there are people, I know uh, a, a high net worth individual that has a dog that they will only take to a certain vet. They happen to live in New Mexico. I won't say what city, but they live in New Mexico and they take their dog to their vet in Chicago. <laughs> uh, that trip in there, they have a, a King Air turboprop. That trip and that turboprop probably costs I don't know, round trip, maybe 15 grand or something. But, you know, they they only want their dog to see a certain vet. So that's what they do. Okay. On that note. (laughs) Another another funny antidote about, you know, that kind of travel is also the, uh, so this was just something that just came up recently. The cost for, connectivity on an aircraft in terms of Wi-Fi and that type of thing has come down considerably. It used to be really, really ridiculously expensive, like 10 or 15,000 a month and stuff like that for the service. That's come down um, exponentially. But in one case, uh, there was a private flight. They had their kid on the flight or grandkid. Kid wanted to watch a movie. They had the old system on their flight, the old, the old uh, uh, Wi-Fi system. They got their bill on the other end because it was a flight to Europe. <laughs> when they got to the other end, they got their bill for that service, or they got their bill later, whenever they got their bill. That one movie that that kid watched cost that owner of that aircraft 10 grand. <laughs> because it was... It was streaming a movie <laughs> to forty thousand feet across the Atlantic. Across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that grandfather or whatever was like, really. <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah. Um, well, speaking of extras, <laughs> since you brought it up, other than the mm. streaming costs, are there extras that? you have to consider when flying private air, regardless of whether you're doing a fractional ownership or you're chartering, uh, is, is there other costs above and beyond just getting on the plane? Usually um, connectivity is a, is a one of the number one extras, although that's becoming much more commonplace now. Um, I, I think uh, catering is probably the most common extra. Uh, that is not something that's included with your fractional deal or whatever. Uh, it's, it's a separate billing uh, and it just it depends on the extensiveness of it. Um, whether you do catering as a uh, where it's just sandwiches or something or whether you want an all out meal and it depends on the length of the trip too. But catering is definitely one that comes into play. 
uh, and that type of thing. The other costs that can be ancillary, it's Vegas weather, so it's super hot, or let's say it's Montana or something weather, so and it may be in the wintertime. You may want your aircraft hangar while you're in town. So you fly there and you want them to put it in the hangar. That, that's an extra cost. You're going to pay for that convenience of it being, being protected in the hangar. Uh, and also, in addition to that, it's, it, the plane will be, um, you know, the temperature. If it's really cold outside and it's in a hangar, that's a good thing. Or if it's really hot outside and it's nice and cool in the hangar because it's an air-conditioned hangar. So those type of things, catering, uh, having it hangered, uh, any kind of uh, – ancillary extra service outside of of uh, the normal operation of the aircraft is something that you would have to pay extra for you also mentioned something uh earlier i, I don't know if it was a response to my question or dave's question about variety of aircraft in broad categories because i know you can't get into the minutiae of every single plane out there in broad categories what are what type of aircraft can you get let's say at the small end the middle end and the large end that's that's great michael so there's what we call light jets and a light jet would be something like a honda jet or small cessna jet uh cessna uh as an example we call it cessna citation m2 uh a, a small Embraer jet those are light jets those jets can be um they usually if you're if they're flying if you're flying as a passenger there's usually two people up front but if you're a pilot you can be qualified to fly single pilot in those aircraft, okay. um, meaning fly by yourself and fly whoever you want in it. Those aircraft usually have four seats, uh, but they usually don't carry very much, and it's usually good for a short flight, like 500 miles or less. They'll go longer, but if you have to, if you have all four seats filled, you can't carry much luggage, okay. and you can't go very far. Okay, so. They're good for short short hops to, you know, hopping over to the next state or two and things like that. If you're trying to fly longer or you want to go um, at least coast to coast, for example, on a domestic flight on a private aircraft, you're going to want a, a, a medium to uh, about a medium sized jet, you know medium to large. Uh, and that, depending on winds and, and again, the, how many people are on the aircraft, et cetera, and so forth, those aircraft have usually anywhere from eight to 12 seats on them. Now, realistically, you know, they'll carry six passengers very comfortably. Um, you can carry more, but then you're going to have to reduce your the distance that you're flying to or the amount of stuff that you carry or the amount of fuel, which therefore means you have to make an extra fuel stop. If you if you carry the if you carry more stuff and more people then and you have to cut back on fuel, then you're going to have to make a fuel stop. Um, but if you're trying to do it nonstop, it's it, it, it's a give and take. It just depends on what's important to you. Uh, and then the the global jets are the are are the big iron. Those those are the big Gulf streams, um, the Dassault Falcon, um, seven or eight. Uh, those those jets will fly seven, eight, nine thousand nautical miles. So you can fly nonstop from New York to Tokyo and, and things like that, or from Washington to um, Beijing, you know, nonstop. Right. Uh, they usually can be configured to have like 15 seats in them. But again, typically they may carry a handful of people. Okay. A handful of people, their luggage and stuff, and lots of fuel. <laughs> gotcha. Go ahead, Dave. I've kind of dominated the conversation because I'm absolutely fascinated with air travel. I think that's probably because I'm an Air Force vet and my dad was in the Air Force. So every time I hear somebody talk about uh, aviation, I, I, I get excited. So my apologies for dominating the conversation. I just wanted Vince to speak somewhat about his relationship um, in terms of the Tuskegee Airmen. 
I find that I find that to be a very interesting conversation. As I said before, I had the opportunity to, of meeting them several years ago, and it yes. has left a left a lasting impression on me. They will leave a lasting lasting impression on you. It's amazing what they accomplished, uh, particularly at the time that they accomplished it. I have an interesting storyline with that. I'll share with you guys real quick. So I actually met some Tuskegee Airmen actually twenty years ago in Los Angeles at Compton Airport. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah. A, a friend of mine that owns an, a flight operation out there, he's done a lot of things with some of the Tuskegee Airmen. So, so I met some of them back then. And I've seen, as you guys may have seen, the, there's been a couple of movies out, of course, a couple of documentaries. Uh, one, uh, one movie is called Tuskegee Airmen, and the other one is called Red Tails. Okay. Red Tails is more recent. I, I like the, the original one, Tuskegee Airmen. That's a personal preference. But the reason I share that with you is because even though I knew who they were, I never really knew what they did. And even though I saw the movie, the movie gives you their history in terms of their flight training and that type of thing. But it doesn't, like most movies, it didn't go into the real depth and detail of what these guys actually really did do and how big of an organization the Tuskegee Airmen actually was. And so I didn't get determined that, get that appreciation until I met Brigadier, now Brigadier General, he was Colonel before, but now Brigadier General Charles McGee, who is right now a hundred and a half. <laughs> and, and, and I met, I met uh, him when he was 92. I met him uh, eight wow. years ago. Uh, I was the National Business Aviation Association has an annual convention that alternates between Las Vegas and, and Orlando. And that year in 2012, the National Business MBAA, National Business Aviation Organization, was giving a meritorious achievement award to Brigadier General McGee and two other Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and I, I guess, I guess because he was a Tuskegee Airman and I'm black, they were like, Vince, you want to fly uh, with with General McGee or Colonel McGee down to the convention and you know make sure that he's uh, you know well situated, blah blah blah. And I was like, sure, I'm the black guy, I'll do that. Um, but <laughs> in in reality, I it was an honor, uh, and I was tickled to death. I was like, yes, absolutely. So I was actually getting ready to leave the house in a few hours to get on a commercial flight when we actually, you know, when I actually was uh, redirected to go to catch the private flight uh, on a Lear 60. I'll never forget it. And it was, it was my first time meeting Brigadier General McGee. And he is um, the best representation uh, or one of the best representatives of being a Tuskegee Airman. He is humble. He is the gentleman. And his accomplishments are off the charts. And so when I met him, I had to do my own homework because he doesn't toot his own horn. So all I knew is I was meeting, you know, having the honor of meeting and spending some time with for the next week, this Tuskegee Airman and meeting the other two. But I, I really didn't get to uh, uh, appreciate him until I learned more about his background. Yeah. Uh, and then when I learned about his over 400 missions, over 300 war, I mean, 300, 400 missions over three wars and that he's flown including the three that I uh, got him to fly recently in the last couple of years, 37 aircraft. So everybody says P-51 Mustang and his training aircraft, the Stearman, but he also flew another 30-something aircraft in addition to that. He actually uh, trained pilots in certain aircraft and things like that. So he he actually commanded a couple of bases. Interesting, a couple of... Um, flight squadrons actually one base and a couple of flight squadrons interestingly enough overseas in places like italy 
he wasn't allowed to command a flight squadron or a base here right. in the U.S., which is a shame because he was good. He knew his stuff. Um, anyhow, really, really amazing guy. Uh, interesting to talk to. He can talk. I just saw him a few weeks ago, sat out on his deck. We did the social distancing thing with masks. I was planning on being there for 30 minutes. I, you know, almost three hours later, I finally left, you know, so uh, we just, you can sit him and you can just have these conversations and, and hear what he has to say. And you want to hear his perspective on anything. The guy could be talking about cabbage and you'd be like, yeah, so what, what are the leaves like on that cabbage? You know? <laughs> so, um, but uh, a great honor to meet those guys, a great honor to spend time with him. Uh, and to summarize it, um, a couple years ago when he was turning 99, uh, I came across a, a gentleman that was a retired uh, Air Force F-15 pilot, and he actually, to make a long story short, had a picture of General McGee in his phone. And we some kind of we had a conversation about Tuskegee Airmen and about McGee, and then he he showed me the picture in his phone. I was like, "Oh, when did you take that?" He goes, "Oh, like 15 years ago." And I said to him, "I said, and you're still carrying it in your phone <laughs> that is immediately accessible?" He goes, "Yeah, I was so honored, and you know, he's one of my mentors in terms of motive, you know, inspiring me and all of that kind of stuff." And I said, "Well, I, I get that absolutely." And so, you know, I just made the casual comment. I said, "You know, I really would like." to do something special for his 99th coming up this December. And which, by the way, he's born on December 7th. Oh, oh. wow. (laughs) And um, anyhow, long story short, we made arrangements to take him up in a Honda jet, a little light jet, private jet, and let him fly it. And we put him in the right seat. And uh, a big deal was made out of it in terms of the whole event. But, you know, we got up to altitude and gave him the controls and he just flew it like, like he'd been doing what he does fly all this yeah. life. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. just a natural with it. And so it was, it was a great experience. And then I thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to top that a year later, but this past December, when he turned a hundred, he actually flew two jets uh, and these we let him do take off the landing. Amazing. Um, and it was it was amazing to watch. It was amazing to see this guy take over, take control of an airplane at 100 years old. And he was on it. He he's one of those guys that once you show him the process and the, the procedures, he locks in and he, he memorizes it. And then he's good from there. You don't have to tell him again. The only thing we had to, to kind of pull him back on a little bit is he likes to go fast. So he likes to <laughs> throttle. He likes the pedal to the metal. He likes to throttle to the wall. And we're like, uh, General, could you ease back a little bit? On the, That's on the, the fighter pilot in him. <laughs> we're, we're, we're over we're over throttling the engines. Oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> Do you have a perspective on how these guys were able to accomplish so much, considering some uh, uh, some of the challenges that they would have faced at that period of time? I do. They gave me the perspective. He gave me the perspective. And that is, is that they were focused on two things. They were focused on um, doing what they had to do in terms of learning to fly and learning combat maneuvering and things like that. Uh, And they were focused on fighting for our country. It was amazing to see these guys be so patriotic under such duress. I mean, they were constantly being told that they were less than and that they, they, they couldn't fly and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. And they were constantly challenged, but they still believed in fighting for our country and they still believed in serving for our country. And that's what they stayed focused on. And they focused on that and their relationship with each other. Um, and, and that relationship was not just the pilots, it was the mechanics, it was the uh, administrative support, it was the operational support. I met a Tuskegee Airman the same, uh, like a year younger than General McGee, he lives in LA, I met him uh, in January, and he was uh, an intelligence officer who actually provided the flying intelligence that the pilots like McGee needed to go in and deal with certain missions. 
So he would get the intelligence, figure it all out, and then brief the pilots and say, okay, when you go in, this is what you need to be aware of. This is where you need to go. This is who you need to hit, whatever. He was the guy that did that. We don't ever think about that guy. You know, we think about the pilot. Right. We may think about the mechanic, but we don't think about that. So, yeah. So, David, yes, he, he uh, they um, were always on mission, and that was their focal point, and that's how they overcame everything else. And along that lo- those lines, I'll, I'll share this story with you. So of the three guys that got the Meritorious Achievement Award uh, from the National Business Aviation Association in 2012 at the convention, they had them up on stage, and they interviewed them uh, in front of an audience of – I'd say it was close to 5,000 in the uh, what was called the opening general session. And as they were asked, talking to these guys, one of the other Tuskegee Airmen uh, said, you know, let me, let me tell you guys what we really dealt with. He said, I got shot down over Germany. I became a German POW. I was in a German POW camp. Because I was a pilot and an officer, I was treated with respect. I was given good meals, I was almost saluted, and I was just treated with respect because I was a pilot and an officer who got shot down and now I'm a prisoner. He said, but when I got back to the United States on a ship and the ship pulled into the port in New York and I was coming down the ladder, there was an enlisted sailor at the bottom of the ladder. He did not salute me. And when I got to the bottom of the ladder, he said the N-word to the right. In other words, you know, I was right back, no matter what I had done, no matter what I had gone through, I was right back in the same boat that of the way things were when I left. So, and even with that, they still walked with their heads tall and they still could be proud that they were accomplished you know, accomplished guys. So, you know, every time somebody tells me a story along those lines, it takes everything in me to hold back my anger. Uh, You know, my grandfather's a World War II vet and he told me something similar when he got back from Okinawa. Um, I've got relatives who were on uh, Normandy Beach on D-Day, who are obviously African-American, who we never hear about in history books. They told me the same stories. Um, And and I I just cringe on one side, but on the other side, I am so damn proud of people like General McGee and those who served in World War II because they gave of themselves knowing full well that they were walking into a hornet's nest the minute that boat hit the American shore. Yeah. And it it hurts. There there are times, Vince and and Dave, where I can't even watch a World War II movie that has an African-American character in it because uh, either A, it was glorified and they wiped out what they really experienced when they got home, Mm -hmm. or B, they actually showed the experience and I just want to reach through and punch my television set. Exactly. Uh, It it hurts. And I don't think people, you know, I know we're in this Black Lives Matter movement now in 2020 and stuff like that, but I don't think people really understand how deep that 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 pain goes inside of us, especially those of us who have either a friend or a relative who lived through that. It it hurts. Yeah, but you know, it does, Michael. But I I have to say this going back to General McGee, and he made a point. He pointed out uh, something to me that I think is is along these lines. There was a pride that African-American men had back then that they didn't they let this stuff roll off their back. They didn't let it they didn't let it deter them. They didn't let it um, keep them from accomplishing or staying focused on what they needed to do. They were like, yep, this is the way. And I'm not saying they were all perfect like that, but the majority of them, and specific to the Tuskegee Airmen, even more specific to Brigadier General McGee, it was like, you know what, I'm not going to let this, you know, um, sidetrack me or derail me or keep me from accomplishing what I know that I can accomplish. So I'm just going to do it. 
And, you know, um, it, it, it'll, it'll be what it'll be. Uh, you, you know, he's, he gets that question asked to him all the time. I've been through a number of interviews with him and people are always asking, how did you deal with it? You know, how did you deal with the, the racism and the discrimination? And, and, and he, you know, he, he would say, he said, you know, I just focused on the task at hand. That's, that, that was my thing. I focused on what I needed to do and what was needed to be done. And I, the rest of it would be what it would be. And because he did that, he continued to grow and rise and, and succeed and, and that type of thing. So I agree with you. I mean, it, it is frustrating. It's frustrating to see a movie like Men of Honor or Tuskegee Airmen or any of that stuff and see the, the but at the same time, as much as it pisses you off, I can say that. Yeah, it, you can. <laughs> it, it really um, gets your attention uh, about these guys' determination mm-hmm. to to just you know plow through that and say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do, you know, and so be it. And I, and I wanted to just tie it in to uh, our loss of John Lewis because I think the mentality that John Lewis represented. In terms of always being, I love the, the terminology they use when they, when they, what do they call the? Good trouble. Good trouble. Yeah. Good trouble. I think that's great. But he, he was somebody that even after all he went through, he still was focused on, but we're going to make this better. We're going to figure this out. Yep. We're going to do this. We're going to do what we have to do. I'm going to become a congressman, and I'm going to be a congressman for a long time. You know, and then he was instrumental in things like the the, the new African American Museum, yep. uh, where it's located. It was his had a corner to the White House, yep. across the street from the monument, at the beginning of all of the other museums. You know, I, it's and and I think my point is is that mindset with uh, John Lewis is the same mindset of Brigadier General McGee and the many others that have, that have served this country and, and that type of thing. Yeah, you know what? I think because of the sacrifice people like General McGee and John Lewis made, I can actually have this feeling inside of me that allows me to express my anger at what they went through. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably be have to refocus my mindset yeah. as well. So I guess on yeah. some level, I, I should be thanking them. Uh, well, I'm going to thank them anyway, because they, they did some extraordinary things under some extraordinary circumstances. So yeah. I got a couple questions, and I'm going to let you get out of here, because I know we've tied up a significant part of your day. Oh, no um, problem. Uh, um, this is a personal question for you directly. 17 years old, Vince Mickens, he's out at the airport uh, in uh, St. Louis. What gave you, why are, Why did you want to fly? I mean, you love it. I've known you for two decades. I know you absolutely love flying. What is it that made you gravitate to that? Uh, I love that question. So I, I, I grew up with music with uh, music teachers, uh, my mother and father, my mom vocal, my dad instrumental. But my dad was a music professor and band director. And his bands were so good that they used to be on the halftime shows for NFL games back when they did that, before they started getting wise and deciding they would you know, recap the game during halftime right. and forget the, the band. But anyhow, because of that, I traveled uh, with my parents when I was young uh, fairly often. So I was always in an airport and on an airplane. So I had an affinity for it at a very young age. But the turning point for me was this is back in the days, again, I'm telling on myself and everybody else, this is back when we had one TV, <laughs> and about five channels. <laughs> well, you had five. Okay, I had three, but okay. <laughs> it was like three networks and PBS and then one UHF channel. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Okay, so I really told on myself. But anyhow, we were, I was 12. We were watching the news, and I saw this kid landing – uh, an air are flying an airplane, taking off and landing uh, a Cessna 172, a four seat aircraft, I winger, at Lambert St. Louis International Airport. And they announced that he was 16 years old. And I was like, get the heck out of here. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I was like, if he can do that. And I told my parents at the dinner table when I was trying to hide the vegetables they were making me eat, <laughs> I was telling my parents, I told my parents right then, I said, Oh, if he can do that, I can do that. And they just thought it was really cute and funny or whatever. I went out the very next day. So we had a newsstand 
not far from where we live that was one of the old-fashioned newsstands. They had every newspaper and every magazine you could ever imagine. They were a huge newsstand. This is back when people read. Um, no, they, they were a huge newsstand. And I got, bought my first flying magazine. And I read that flying magazine cover to cover. Wow. And um, I mean, and it had a, a advertising thing in it where you could circle the number of the advertising page and they would send you brochures and it wasn't a very sophisticated system. So if you asked for it, they sent it to you. So I would get these brochures on all of these different kinds of airplanes and airplane aircraft batteries and tires. And you know, what, if it had something to do with aviation, I said, okay, I want to see the brochure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started, I started really reading it. And then I would ride my bike to the airport, which was about a 30 minute ride on a bike. But I would ride my bike to the airport. And that was back in the day, you could literally ride your bike, go to the jet center, lay your bike on the side and walk in and talk to people or walk out to the aircraft and talk to the pilots. You know, as a kid, it it just we didn't have all of the security issues that we have now. So you could just freely do that. And I would go and I would talk to the pilots and talk them into letting me, you know, take a look in the aircraft, maybe sit in the cockpit, maybe go over some stuff in the cockpit. So nice one quickie on there. So I had this one pilot said he was deadheading to Memphis. He's going to go there for something and come back and that I could fly with him if I wanted to. So I said, okay, just a minute. And I went to a payphone. So again, you know what era it is. Yep. And I called my parents, <laughs> my mom answers. And I said, Hey, guys flying to Memphis and uh, said, I could go with them. Can I just do that? We'll be back in a couple hours. I cannot repeat what my mother said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but needless to say, it had to do with me. Get on your bike and bring your behind home. <laughs> and of course, I was totally frustrated and mad because I was like, wow, they were, they were saber liner jets um, at okay. that time. That was the one of the first business jets, right? You know, that and the Lear. And the saber liner jet used to be the business jet for the Air Force. That's where I remember that from. Yeah, okay. Okay. it used to be the business jet for the Air Force. And then it became a business jet for civilian. But anyhow, they had a bunch of them on the ramp and stuff like that. So I that's that was my catalyst for really getting into aviation and and really just loving it. And then I went to a high school that had an aviation ground school course as a class for industrial art. And the industrial arts teacher was a pilot, (laughs) Mr. Schroeder. And Mr. Schroeder, that was the one class that I was like, well, I know I'm going to get an A on this baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I took my ground school in high school um, before I took my first flight lesson. So between taking ground school in high school and, and I think it was my sophomore year in my sophomore year of high school. And, um, I had a little radio shack, uh, radio that I could monitor air frequencies. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to them all the time. So I learned the phonetic alphabet and all that stuff. So I was ready to fly. I was ready to be a naval aviator, but these kept that from happening, <laughs> but I was ready to fly, but my parents were, were teachers. So they didn't have the extra money for, you know, paying right. for lessons. So I, you know, have my little job, I'd save my little money, and then I'd go spend it on flying. Flying was a lot cheaper back then. Wow. I, well, I'm going to wrap this up, but you know what? I'm pissed. Your high school had an aviation-type class. I graduated from high school at the Air Force Academy, and we didn't have one. All right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that one out. Um, I know. I know. So. I just, it, yeah, it was, it was it, the, the, the um, as they say, the stars were aligned for me for aviation, but not, the interesting thing is, and I just wrap it up with this. I never wanted to be a commercial pilot. I didn't want to fly for the airlines. I thought military flying was cool. I wanted to actually land on carriers, but I I never had a desire to fly for hire. I always just liked the idea of flying, but I always wanted to do it on, uh, if if I can say that, do it on my terms, which is a great thing about private flying because you can. You can do it on your terms. Well, I, I for one, am extremely happy that you were able to follow your passion. Not very many people in life get to follow their passion and turn it into a career. That's very uh, true. You're to be 
commended for that. Uh, I am proud to use my friend as my, as my brother. Um, and uh, I, I am so thankful that you were able to do this with us today. And uh, I hope to have you back. Uh, we need to talk about the Bob Hoover Foundation on the next episode. So uh, please come back, share some more of that great aviation knowledge. And you know I'm going to be peppering you by private air travel because I intend to investigate as soon as this is over. <laughs> Sounds good. I really enjoyed uh, having you today and listening to you know, share your knowledge. So thanks again. Thank you guys. Appreciate it being on. Mm-hmm.